0: All right. All right, dude. All right, let's blow through it. Let's
1: let's blow through it. Can I kick us off? Maximum efficiency. Okay. Go. Hello, folks. This is Champs at the Lit with Mark and Max. I'm Max, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mark. I'm Mark. Welcome to episode 7 of our podcast. Today we're going to be talking about American Prometheus, a biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And uh, Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit about the authors of the book and why they wrote it?
0: Yeah, so uh, we'll obviously spend most of our time talking about Oppenheimer's life, but he's most famous for uh, leading the Manhattan Project that developed the nuclear bomb during World War II. And, uh, so the primary researcher on the book was a historian focused on nuclear weapons. Um, he had taught at a number of different universities and because Oppenheimer was such an important figure for the development of, uh, nuclear energy, weapons, uh, all that kind of thing, he had been researching, you know, sort of accumulating research on Oppenheimer for 20 years, done a bunch of interviews and found documents, that kind of thing. So he, uh, approached a journalist named kai bird uh who had worked on some other biographies and foreign relations stuff and then together they kind of co-wrote the book it won the pulitzer in 2006 i think in the biography category Uh, and it is not a short book it's 721 pages in paperback and what was it on audio was it 20 40 i don't know it was long
1: i think it's like 25 hours 25 25 hours. hours yeah yeah
0: so it's a it's a good chunk of time to invest but um but it was good
1: and to be clear, that's Martin J. Sherwin. That's the uh, other author. Oh yeah, he has a name.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess do you want to do you want to kick us off on the Oppenheimer sort of brief rundown of his life before we get into details?
1: Absolutely, I would love to do that. Okay, so the uh, brief bio for Oppenheimer. Um, he was born in uh, New York City in 1904. Um, to uh, German-Jewish parents. His uh, dad was an immigrant from uh, Germany. came to the States with uh, nothing and kind of built up a family fortune. And his dad was kind of an easygoing, sort of verbose person. Um, His mother was supportive, but uh, she's described as being quietly demanding in the book. Um, He had a younger brother, Frank, considerably younger, I think,
0: it was Like a nine-year guy, nine years, yeah.
1: So it was almost like a, or he became almost like a sort of father figure to his younger brother, and they developed a very close relationship later on in life. And Frank also became a physicist. And Oppenheimer had a pretty privileged, we could say, pretty privileged background. You know, his father came from came from nothing, but had made his fortune by the time Oppenheimer was, you know, growing up. And he's was a sort of prodigy in school. Um, I don't, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, know he, how, was a, he was a he was a standout student. That. I don't yeah. know,
0: yeah. But he he yeah. was the type of kid who would like skip grades, was doing more mm-hmm. advanced work than all the other kids in his class. Yeah,
1: I think there's a part in the book where he describes. Um, you know, Oppenheimer talks about feeling like, you know, school, it's no fun when you already know all the information sort of thing. Like that sort of sums up his... yeah uh,
0: He had to find ways of challenging himself meeting mm-hmm. outside of class or reading, you know, advanced math textbooks on his own or mm-hmm. that kind of thing.
1: And it seems like he got, you know, pretty into some very like kind of solitary pursuits, things like uh, rock collecting, sailing, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Um, and his educational background is sort of interesting just to talk about it briefly. He went to the Ethical Culture School, which, as the book describes it, it's sort of an outgrowth of Reform Judaism. Um, it had strong ties to the sort of developing labor movement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but yeah, the book describes it as it promoted the social-cultural over self-aggrandizement. It uh, rejected Zionism and it favored a kind of Republican Judaism. It sort of had this almost patriotic, like... Uh, sense of, like, uh, as Jews in America, uh, we should try to make it in America, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, there was a lot of focus on, like, civic engagement and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of making the world a better place and volunteering and and working with other people. And also the school itself seemed to be quite democratic in Mm -hmm. nature. You know, it was less sort of formal and um, hierarchical than other similar schools. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And overall, I mean, not to spend too much time on it, but <laughs> it does seem like it, uh, you know, it was sort of the, provided the foundation for, for Oppenheimer later on. And you can see, you know, how, you know, Oppenheimer developed this, you know, pretty intense interest in sort of left uh, left politics and, um, this, and labor movement and that sort of thing. And I think that all, you know, most likely that all goes back to his upbringing. And uh, you know, it's despite the fact that he grew up um, kind of in the lap of, in the lap of luxury, right? And didn't necessarily, yeah. you know, he you know his 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 upbringing could have been totally different without that sort of emphasis on, um, you know, the uh, uh, the good of society sort of thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's a great deal of concern about yeah labor conditions and poverty and mm-hmm. equality and you know, yeah, sort of important social issues
1: yeah anyway so after the ethical culture school uh oppenheimer goes to harvard he graduates in three years he actually started in chemistry but switched over to physics um, part way through he did a year of work at cambridge which was disastrous Uh, (laughs) um, and then from there he went to the university of mark you say it
0: i think Uh gottingen it's got the umlaut over the o
1: okay in germany and that was sort of the uh the center of uh, theoretical physics at the time and an important sort of thing to note about oppenheimer his career or his time as a student and then later on his um, career as a physicist is that he was never a very good experimentalist that's uh, so that's one of the reasons why his time at ox or yeah his time at, cambridge. at oxford yeah, cambridge was so disastrous was that he was expected to do, to be running experiments the whole time and he hated it um, and can never, you know, can never, can never do them right.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, he was just very bad at lab work, would, you know, break things, couldn't put things together, was not like mechanically gifted with his hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, so he graduates, he uh, becomes a professor at Berkeley and Caltech. Um, I think over the course of the life, of his life, it's notable that he had independent wealth Mm -hmm. Um, from his family. And so he was never really that concerned about whatever salary he was drawing from his various uh, positions. Uh, And he, you know, was able to sort of live much beyond the normal means of like a new professor uh, by, you know, having a nice house and throwing parties or, you know, whatever he wanted to do, Mm -hmm. Uh, sailboats. So uh, he uh, is basically the only American at the time who understands the newly developed quantum theory in physics. He had spent time, yeah, sort of working with the top in the field uh, at Göttingen and in Europe. And so he comes back and sets up the, the um, premier physics institution at Berkeley for people who want to do theoretical physics. I mean, yeah, quantum quantum mechanics was such a revolutionary overhaul of what physics believed that older physicists in the U.S. just had no, like couldn't wrap their their, their minds around it, certainly couldn't teach it. Uh, As a result, he became a mentor to basically the entire next generation of U.S. students or students who studied in the U.S. at Berkeley. Uh, So there's a whole long list of names that he taught at Berkeley and then who also worked with him on the Manhattan Project, um, who were his acolytes. Um, The
1: the book describes that like uh, Oppenheimer opened a lot of doors that other physicists ended up walking through in terms of developing, you know, various, uh, theories and stuff, things that won, you know, Nobel prizes later on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, yeah, was an important mentor and helped kind of guide various research efforts. And then he was one of the first to theorize and do work on the possibility of a nuclear bomb. They, you know, when it was discovered that someone had in fact managed to split an atom, they were, there were a lot of, uh, I guess there's a lot of speculation about what the consequences of that might mean or what the implications were and so he was one of the first to kind of sketch out okay theoretically if you wanted to weaponize this what would that look like um and then as a result of you know being an important american physicist in this circle He was uh, one of the candidates to lead the scientific side of the Manhattan Projects. And then he was chosen, it seems like based on partly his brilliance, uh, he was very impressive in person, and then partly based on his ambition, which made him, uh, I guess, a safe choice in the sense that as long as he was, uh, I guess, as long as he was convinced that following orders was necessary for the advancement of his career, then he would stay in line. Uh, And so that made him a little bit more pliable than other candidates might have been.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was concern, like, um, for a number of years leading up to the actual, like, initiation of the Manhattan Project, there had been various, like, committees to work on the development of a potential bomb or, you know, uses for uranium. And uh, people wanted to bring on Oppenheimer because he, he was one of those sort of leading experts but there have been concerns about his sort of political background um, up until the time he was appointed. And I think it's important to note that the the head of the Manhattan Project, Leslie R. Groves, a, a general, he picked uh, Oppenheimer over scientists like Ernest Lawrence, who had a much more sort of well-established background in um, experimental physics, and were the kind of people or the scientists that one might have expected to have led the Manhattan Project because it was such a sort of practical, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of of funny to
0: have a guy who's like an incompetent experimentalist Mm -hmm. work on a project that is, I mean, there were certainly theoretical problems to figure out. And so I think he was exceptionally useful in those, but in the Mm -hmm. parts that were like, how do we physically construct this thing? He was not as helpful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the Manhattan Project happens. We, We will talk in more detail about that. Uh, but obviously pretty well-known, big project in the New Mexico desert at Los Alamos to build the nuclear bomb. Uh, So nuclear bomb is built, nuclear bomb is uh, detonated twice in Japan. We will also talk about that, but uh, that sort of is the end of his uh, immediate involvement in construction of nuclear weapons. So after the war, he goes to the Institute of Advanced Study, uh, at Princeton. So this is where Einstein and a whole bunch of other uh, you know Herbert Simon famous mathematicians and um, to some degree other other academics, but it was kind of dominated by mathematicians and I guess, physicists. Uh, so he's he's the, I don't know what they call him Dean. He's basically the administrator of that institution. Um, so he becomes kind of a university administrator and then also becomes uh, a public intellectual. So after nineteen fifty, he basically hasn't like he doesn't publish any of his own research. he's not. Actively researching, he's running this institution, and then he's giving speeches, showing up on the cover of Time, serving on various national committees and uh, advisory boards uh, related to atomic energy. So most notably, he works on the Atomic Energy Commission um, and was close with uh, George Kennan and George Marshall and Dean Acheson and all these kind of you know statesmen of the early Cold War era. Um, The Atomic Energy Commission was really important for figuring out what our strategy was around uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. Uh, but then during the Red Scare, because of prior ties to communism, he gets targeted by the House on american Activities Committee, and then um, by certain members of the Atomic Energy Commission. And there's kind of a famous hearing where he uh, gets stripped of his security clearance, um, and basically gets kind of railroaded. There's this idea that it's you know a kangaroo court, and he didn't have you know they they sort of set it up in such a way that it was impossible for him to to win the hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of takes him out of the limelight to some degree. Uh, He continues as the administrator at Princeton, but other than that, doesn't do a lot else that's particularly notable. Um, And then he dies pretty young. So he dies in 1967, age 62, from throat cancer. He was a chain smoker. Um, And then I think, yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting to think about his legacy now because uh, to me, I knew very little about him coming into this book aside from the fact that he had run the Manhattan Project and that he had... um, you know made the famous statement well apparently he didn't actually make this statement but he (laughs) thought to himself remembered the line from the Bhagavad Gita that I am become death destroyer of worlds after seeing it detonate but like I didn't even know that he was a physics PhD or you know that he was especially brilliant or anything about him except that he was you know sort of the guy running the Manhattan Project yeah
1: Um, yeah I also knew you know very little about Oppenheimer and his life prior to reading this book and you know it's an interesting he had an interesting life he definitely had a big impact on um, the development of the nuclear bomb and then sort of nuclear policy or early nuclear policy. And I think he's one of those figures in history that was really well known. I mean, the book says that, you know, apart from maybe Einstein at the time. At like, the time, uh, yeah, he was my you know, like household the mid, name. Mid, you know, yeah, late 40s, he was like the most well known scientist and sort of epitomized um this kind of golden age of you know the scientist as a um as a uh as a kind of modern promethean right as a like model 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 person
0: yeah yeah so i think it's interesting to think about that given that yeah his his legacy feels like it hasn't endured in the same way um as say Einstein's, like Einstein is now still, I think, held in similar regard to how he was held in his lifetime, and Oppenheimer is not, and probably a lot of that is is because of the um, the, the Red Scare, communism railroading of him that um, kind of destroyed his public image. Um, but I mean, yeah, like of of people that knew him, and at the time he was he was a genius, right? He was known to be a genius. He was like the brilliant mad scientist who had conceived of the nuclear bomb. <laughs> Um, yeah, but there's this notion that it—he it, sort of came up with this whole thing, and it was all from him. I mean, he—he he right. sort of got credit for the whole project. Yeah. But the—the the book does make the case that he was, in fact, uh, you know, I guess a genius is how a lot of people seem to describe him. When people interacted with him, they were just blown away by his intelligence. He was very quick, um, you know, in the moment at picking up on ideas and and sort of repartee. And he also had a really remarkable breadth of knowledge, which is something that uh, I think maybe doesn't come out unless you read these sort of details about him, but he knew like seven or eight languages, taught himself Sanskrit. And so he had actually read the Bhagavad Gita and did read it regularly in Sanskrit. He had studied like very deeply, you know, various sort of American history and French literature and uh, all these different kinds of things. And so there are all these little anecdotes of him interacting with some expert in a field, whether it was geology or, uh, you know, like european history or whatever it was and he would actually like like, like, come up with ideas these guys had never thought of and could like you know engage with them as though he was an equivalent expert even though his official expertise was just theoretical physics yeah so i think one of one of the questions i had was like is i mean there's there's sort of a pattern with these sorts of biographies that uh they tend to lionize their subject in Mm -hmm. a way that Makes one a little bit skeptical mm-hmm. uh, that you know pick a pick a biography of a famous man and he's inevitably going to be you know brilliant and wise and have done all these amazing things and obviously there's a selection bias that you know you're only really going to write biographies about people who are like this to a degree um, but I think there the, the, there were times when some of the things seemed almost incredible and uh, in particular I think it, it feels like the authors are doing a lot of work to give him credit for actual physics ideas like if you look at his his publication record itself he isn't really directly credited in the physics community or in you know like by by publication citations with having come up with a lot of these ideas but there's this notion that he um, you know, there was a question that came up and he sort of sketched out, oh, I think this is what the answer is going to be, but then didn't actually do the work to follow through and like do the theorems uh, mm-hmm. to prove it. And then someone else comes along and they take his idea, whether explicitly from him or whether they discover it independently and do all the same, you know, sort of do all the proper work and publish it. And then it, it, they get credit for it under their own name.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's notable that, you know, he never won a Nobel. Um, and I guess it's notable because it seems like everybody else around him won a nobel at some at some point <laughs> i mean right. not everyone but not everyone yeah, but they're you know. like
0: and, and if they didn't win a nobel they were just like really famous scientists right
1: right uh, and uh yeah there's this uh <laughs> i think it's it's one of uh you know i think it was like one of the physicists that knew him that was describing you know the reasons why he never won a nobel and um she uses this term zit's flesh sitting flesh that it's this German idea that, uh, you know, sort of stick-to-itiveness, and that was what Oppenheimer lacked, uh, at least in terms of his sort of physics career, or his career as a scientist. That, yeah, he would have, you know, these sort of ideas, or he would play off the ideas of his students or peers, but he never really dove deeply into a single idea, really fleshed it out, and... Uh, you know it's for that reason that he never you know he never won a nobel
0: yeah so like a good a good example of this is that he writes a paper in like 1930 that sort of predicts the existence well it, it does predict the existence of a positron um, and he was kind of responding negatively to another paper that um, had said the opposite uh, and uh, but he he just sort of says like sketches out like this is intuitively the argument for why this thing must exist uh, but then two years later, uh, someone actually discovers the positron. So they do all the proper like theoretical and experimental work to prove that the positron exists. And then they got the Nobel Prize as Carl David Anderson in mm-hmm. 1936. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing that seems to happen a lot in his career. And it's not clear, again, if he, like, does he get credit for that in the sense that was his work important to the discovery of the positron because he spurred it on and gave people ideas? Or... Was he just being kind of lazy and never finishing stuff up and everybody else had to do the actual work to get there and they, they were going to come up with these ideas on their own and he was, I don't want to say dilettante, but like a little bit casual with his with his approach.
1: Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's that idea, right? Isn't it, it's like complementary development? Isn't the idea that like in science often, you know, multiple people have basically the same idea around the same time. But it's usually yes. only a single person that gets credited with the idea. Um, and it's not even always the first person, you know, to have discovered the idea.
0: Right. And I think I think my question is, like, is that a genuine contribution or not? Um, like, like was it helpful for him to have written this paper or could he have never written the paper and everything would have been the same? That's obviously an unanswerable question. Yeah, it, but it I is... think I think the authors lean really hard on the idea that, like, he was this sort of really seminal, important figure in a lot of yeah. uh scientific discoveries and i'm a little bit skeptical yeah. of how how far they take it um, yeah i mean so i think one of the things that is remarkable about him is his ability to change so much uh, that he goes through a bunch of pretty significant transformations over the course of his life he starts off as this like nerdy introverted kind of socially inept kid who like can't talk to girls and has maybe one friend at a time uh, is very socially awkward and then um by the time he becomes a professor has become really charismatic and uh you know is sort of a social not butterfly per se but he knows lots of people he's a very wide network he's hosting parties he's attending parties he's uh you know kind of suave and sophisticated and uh i think the the charisma is most element or most evident with the grad students that he has who all start adopting his like speech mannerisms like he has certain verbal tics that Mm -hmm. they all pick up on and then there's they like all...
1: a, a mim 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 or something like that noise that they yeah, all yeah, start it goes making mim, mim, mim
0: when they're when they're thinking <laughs> and then they all like dress like him and they all start chain smoking like him and they adopt his posture mm-hmm. and like his walk and people sort of you know multiple yeah. different people remark on visiting campus and seeing all these like miniature oppenheimers yeah. running around and
1: there's some sort of like grapevine network where like if somebody says something about Oppenheimer, it gets back to Oppenheimer, sort of thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, he's got this like crew, uh, and yeah. that you know, it's not exa- at all what you would expect from someone who, as a kid, wasn't like a leader of other kids, right? He was socially outcast. I mean, he was kind of off on his own, mm-hmm. and then uh, the. Uh, next transformation is when he is uh, tapped to lead the Manhattan Project and has never done any kind of administrative work before. He's only been, you know, a single contributor, basically. Mm -hmm. He'd never done anything remotely close to the scale of the Manhattan Project. And it's actually, Uh, I remember,
1: it's kind of (laughs) like, he had this sort of laughable, like, when he gets assigned to be the head of the Manhattan Project, Project, like, initially he thinks, like, okay, yeah, I'm going to need, like, me and, like, six other scientists and we'll figure (laughs) it out and uh right. yeah you know he sort of learns that you know no you know it's not you know
0: this is this is a know, humongous yeah. Un- undertaking yeah yeah i think it's
1: like 30,000 people or something like that like eventually get um like partake right. in the project right i mean they they build a whole new
0: town out in the middle of the desert mm-hmm. where there was almost nothing mm-hmm. so he he yeah sort of learns these skills on the fly becomes by the end of his tenure there everybody you know is glowing with praise Mm -hmm. for his administrative ability his tact his dealing with you know sort of balancing the competing needs of various groups yeah yeah he's sort of like
1: the indispensable part of the whole project right
0: yeah he's he's the glue man he keeps it all together yeah yeah and then um yeah so that kind of comes out of nowhere and then the next thing is is he after uh, the manhattan project becomes involved in kind of policy circles And yeah, had done zero government policy work beforehand and then picks it all up and has a bunch of kind of cogent ideas and major contributions to make. Not around the science of, you know, the equations of how a bomb works or how atoms and nuclear physics work, Uh, but, you know, sort of nation states and strategy and how to deal with the Soviet Union. And I mean, it's a very different set of problems, but he's able to pretty quickly digest the important material and then come up with original and useful ideas.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, so one of the things that I was thinking about, um, in terms of this idea of Oppenheimer as this very charismatic figure, um, is that on the one hand, you know, that's certainly true, you see all these examples throughout his life, and the reason he's picked ahead the Manhattan Project by uh, Leslie R. Groves, the uh, general that's actually in overall control of the project. Um, is because he meets with Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer just kind of blows him away with his sort of genius and he thinks he's really the only scientist that he's met um, who has the ability to sort of grow, go across like disciplines and understand uh, you know understand all the various parts of the project and sort of uh, make a whole out of all the parts um, right. but so there's that but on the other hand, there, there are these instances in his life where it seems like his charisma, his charm, his ability to influence other people in the way that, you know, he wants to have them see things how he sees them. It just sort of abandons him or, you know, like he can't like muster that Like most, most notably his uh, first meeting with uh, Truman. Um, you know, when Truman becomes a new president pretty early on, he has a meeting with Oppenheimer and... Well, I guess this is, this is like after the bombs have been dropped, um, but they're trying to decide, you know, what to do in terms of nuclear policy going forwards. And Oppenheimer has this chance to meet with Truman and potentially influence the way that nuclear policy develops in the country. And it's a disaster, you know, (laughs) uh, uh, Truman leaves the meeting and, you know, he tells like an aide or, or something like that, that, you know, I never want to see that guy again. Um, And, you know, that could just be, you know, Truman's, uh, you know, Truman's personality. But I think, you know, it's one of a number of instances in uh, Oppenheimer's life where uh, it's almost like the reverse of his ability to be charismatic and charming.
0: Yeah. Uh. Yeah. He certainly isn't always able to pull it off with people um there there are a number of instances where i mean he, he's extremely arrogant uh mm-hmm. he he was known in academic settings for just like interrupting people and going off and like explaining their own idea in better words or i mean yeah like there there yeah, lots sort of, of abrasive like parts child, of his personality child prodigy. Mm-hmm. yes yeah. yeah sort of inappropriate yeah. so times right uh, so he he can be annoying i mean definitely a lot of the rough edges get uh kind of knocked off by the time he's at the manhattan project uh and he does become a lot more politic but those sides of him still remain and there are times i mean there's there's this funny like kind of famous incident where he they have a really extreme falling out at the end of his life with this family that lives next to them on this island in where in (laughs) nicaragua or somewhere they like Uh, they like buy a caribbean vacation home when he's like in his 60s i'm trying to think of what the island there's some neighboring family who just hates them yeah. Anyway, like it's not that important, but all that to say, he is not universally beloved. No. Uh and he he can be annoying, but I still think the the remarkable thing is how how able he is to overcome a lot of challenges and to to adjust his personality and learn new skills and learn not just hard skills but like kind of soft skills, of ways of interacting with people mm-hmm. on the fly. That seems pretty unusual.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, another way of describing that would be that You know he is a very adaptable person and that could be you know that could be good and bad um i was thinking about this in terms of you know when he gets uh put in in charge of the uh, manhattan project you know he insists he kind of like takes up like uh i don't know like a, a military way of thinking or bearing like he insists that um you know he become a commissioned officer and that he go through a physical even though he fails physical but you know and he gets like an officer's uniform especially tailored for himself and it's I guess what's surprising is that you know up to this point he has no he had no involvement with the military whatsoever but because he's put in this new role that requires a sort of partnership between the scientific community and the military like in terms of the Manhattan Project it's the military that's in overall charge of the project now Oppenheimer sort of negotiates this way in which the scientists report to Oppenheimer and they're separate from the military and they don't have to take up commissions until the project is actually completed and they're testing the weapon. Um, But, you know, early on in the project for him personally, it's like he has to sort of adopt this sort of military persona, um, in order to, you know, or at least he thinks he needs to in order to sort of succeed in the project. Right. And I think you could see that on the one hand as being like him being adaptable in a good way. And, you know, that's what he needed to do in order to stay on the good side of Groves and the other, you know, generals and military officials involved in the project. Um, but on the other hand, there's this uh, maybe like kind of squishiness to his like personality or to his beliefs or to his convictions. And I think later on you see this in terms of You know, when we're, we'll talk about this here in a minute, that like the decision to actually use the the bomb against Japan, you know, there's this whole sort of movement or group of scientists that are opposed to using it or opposed to using it in the fashion that it is ultimately used. But Oppenheimer is sort of unwilling to really consider, um, you know, really seriously consider their opinions because he sort of adopted this sort of military uh, frame of mind, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Um so yeah, onto the onto the bomb itself. Um uh, the first question is like, you know, was the bomb genuinely inevitable? There's this idea that the Germans were about to build it, um, and so we have to build it because better us than the Germans. Like ov- obviously ideally a world would have no nuclear bombs, but if the Germans are gonna get one anyway, we should get one first. Um, so all the scientists are pretty like don't really have a lot of ethical concerns for the most part about building a bomb before Germany does because that's a necessity but then they get to the point where it's actually evident that the germans aren't going to get one and then the germans surrender uh and so then i guess that begs the question first is a bomb still inevitable uh and two do they then start bearing responsibility for the actions they're taking in in participating in the development
1: yeah i mean you know basically it it was german scientists that discovered fission in 1939 and then, yeah, there's this ongoing concern from that point on. Uh, I know the book mentions that like the feasibility of a bomb was proved in 1941, and I don't have the more specific notes about you know why exactly at that, at that time. But basically, after that point, uh, there are a lot of European scientists, Niels Bohr in particular, that are super concerned that the Germans may be uh, building, the, building a bomb and may be much further along in that process because Germany was such a center for physics research. Um, right,
0: I mean, yeah, uh, Oppenheimer basically learns quantum physics at Göttingen mm-hmm. during before the war. That's right.
1: And uh, I, for me, in terms of you know the the question of do the scientists bear responsibility, I think I think the answer is yes, and I think it's yes because so like I mentioned um, just a little while ago, there's this group of scientists that uh, actively uh, oppose the use of the bomb. Like once so once Germany is surrendered. The bomb still isn't finished. And throughout the Manhattan Project up to that point, like it seems that almost all the scientists were working towards the goal of building a bomb, thinking that if it's used, it's going to be used against Germany. Right? There was never really any serious consideration that it would be used against Japan. But once right. Germany surrenders, well, you have you, we've spent all this time, all this money, all this manpower on building a bomb. We're so close to finishing it. And there seems to be this sense of, well, we've got to use it somewhere. We got to use it somehow. And Japan becomes the target. Um, but yeah, there, there's a group of scientists, Leo Szilard in particular, um, who's actively opposing this. in, uh, in in June, 1945, there's a report right. that's put out the Frank Report. Um, and basically what they call for is, so rather than dropping the bomb on Japanese cities, we should, uh have a demonstration of the bomb before like a uh, kind of un type delegation that could include that would include like Japanese representatives and uh yeah and, and the point being that okay there's that group of sci- group of scientists but for Oppenheimer you know Oppenheimer uh he takes the opposite tack he doesn't endorse that and um so I think for that reason you could say that the scientists do because it wasn't like all the scientists were united in or you know that was the only way or, or the only um decision or or I don't know I'm, I'm sort of talking myself in circles here
0: <laughs> yeah no i think that there is uh there is a growing number of people who voice concerns and eventually leave the project at some point mm-hmm. um and then i think yeah, there, there are these set of decisions that they make around how to deploy the bomb that are kind of suspect. Uh, I mean, in particular, once they decide to use it on Japan, the scientists, I mean, Oppenheimer is like in the room helping them decide, like, here are the cities to hit. Here's how to maximize loss of life. Mm-hmm. And here are the sort of scientific features of the bomb that will enable you to kill lots and lots of people. Uh, yeah. And I think I think he bears responsibility for that, right? Like, sure. like. You know, that's that's far beyond the we just need this capability in our back pocket in case the Germans develop it or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that sort of gets us into the overall like decision to use the bomb itself. Right. right. Uh, That the rationale, the public rationale that was given for a long time and that still is the dominant narrative in at least the U.S., that is taught in high schools, I think the average American probably would, would tell you, is that we had to bomb Japan with nuclear weapons to get them to back down and surrender and because they were not going to surrender under any conditions. And it was going to be this terrible loss of life because you know men, women, and children were all going to pick up arms and sort of fight to the last stand, and all these American soldiers would die, and all these Japanese people would die. And so even though it was really terrible that people died from the nuclear bombs, it was actually fewer people than would have died if we didn't drop them.
1: Yeah, this is the line that, you know, Truman maintained throughout, you know, after his during his presidency and then thereafter, like in his memoirs, you know, he he continues to maintain that the if not sole reason, the the primary reason that the bomb was dropped was to save the lives of Americans, you know, American servicemen. And I guess potentially you could say Japanese because, you know, the idea being that they would defend every inch of Japan with their lives. Uh, but really, it was about American servicemen. And right. um, yeah, it turns out that's not the case. Uh, there's um, there, there's a good book, uh, I think it was published in 96, by the historian Ronald uh, Takaki, and he... Uh, He lays it out in quite stark detail that really the primary motivation was to prevent the Soviet Union from entering the war um, and then, you know, thereby having a sort of stake in the peace process with Japan. Um, He points out that uh, there had recently been a number of uh, key cabinet positions that were occupied by uh, Japanese officials who wanted peace with the US. And that the the real sticking point was the future of the emperor and whether he would have to you know abdicate or not. Um, but Truman, Churchill, and other sort of leaders were intent on having an unconditional surrender from Japan, um, even though you know Japanese officials were quite openly expressing their desire to seek some sort of um, you know peace settlement. Right. Um,
0: yeah. So. I think no one seems to, no no one no one at the time really seemed to see through this except for people who were on the inside, mm-hmm. um, and the genuine rationale seemed like it was actually to uh, deter the Soviets, I guess to some degree from entering the war, but also from developing their own nuclear bomb, or just kind of to scare them off and say like, you know, as we split the world up between us after the the war, like. We you should be somewhat afraid of us because yeah, we have sure. some leverage in the sure. form of a nuclear bomb. Definitely, like
1: a demonstration of the power of the United States. And there's a, you know, um, there's the Potsdam meeting between um, Truman and Stalin, and you know, Truman only makes like a very sort of oblique reference to, oh, we got this new weapon, and you know, we're going to use it. Um, you know, at no point does he, you know, more explicitly share with the Soviets. You've developed this weapon. And I think historians now think that, you know, that helped to sort of fuel, well, it helped to fuel sort of Soviet fears of, well, you know, now the Americans have this new terrifying weapon and it uh, jump-started the sort of Soviet development of their own nuclear bomb. And it's just a few, you know, a few short years later that they detonate their own nuclear weapon.
0: Right. So then that takes us into the the development of a hydrogen bomb uh so this is after the war uh the soviets have i guess tested their nuclear bomb in 1949 and uh there was this possibility of of stopping all hydrogen bombs from ever being developed potentially with like a new arms control regime um i thought i thought this was a really interesting kind of revelation for me from the book that the nature of a hydrogen bomb is such that uh, detonation can be tested anywhere in the world or can be detected anywhere in the world, which means that because you have to at least do one test detonation in order to develop the thing, we could have just sort of set a pact with all other countries in the world that no one's gonna develop the hydrogen bomb. And it would have been pretty easy to uh, det- like detect, or we could, we could tell if anyone had violated that agreement because it's just by nature of the physics of it is detectable anywhere in the world. And so as soon as one country actually set one off, then everyone else would develop it. And it seems like it would clearly be a lose-lose for everybody to have to spend a bunch of money on like a hydrogen bomb arms race. And so if we had managed to get everyone on board and to sign this pact, then maybe there would be no hydrogen bombs, which means we'd be left with conventional nuclear weapons. Well, I guess that's a contradiction in terms, but uh, we would have been left with the smaller nuclear weapons uh, that are bad but not nearly as bad as a hydrogen bomb and we would be living in a much safer world right now and maybe would have avoided a lot of the arms race of the cold war um
1: yeah i mean it's it's a matter of scale you know my understanding is that a hydrogen bomb it's it scales a magnitude more uh more explosive that's that's i'm sure that's not the right term but you know more explosive than a regular fission nuclear weapon and there were there were even concerns like at the time that people were you know theorizing of whether it'd be possible and and uh, you know scientists were worried that you know if you explode one of these things maybe it would ignite the uh, it would ignite the atmosphere of the entire planet. Um, so people you know at the time there was debate over you know whether it was feasible or not. Um, and yeah, like Mark was saying, um, there were policymakers people like George Kennan that uh you know developed ideas of you know well if we propose a moratorium on the development of a hydrogen bomb um you know that might forestall a sort of rush to an arms race in the future and basically his argument being right. that okay like we saw with um you know we, we kept uh you know the technology behind the fission bomb secret from the soviets but you know, four years after we detonate, um, detonate our bombs, the Soviets detonate theirs, and it's going to be the same process with the super. Um, you know, the Soviets will inevitably catch up or, you know, test their own hydrogen bomb. And that if uh, so, you know, it's not a panacea to, you know, the threat from the Soviet Union and that instead we should be relying on conventional arms and just conventional nuclear weapons. Uh, We should commit to a no first use, uh, a no first use policy and that we should treat the UNI, we should treat the USSR as a rational, uh, as a rational state, not as a, you know, as a tyrannical, but a rational state, not as a, you know, reckless um, player on the international stage without, you know, the ability to sort of influence its direction. Right. And it, you know, and it, Looking back in hindsight, you know, Kennan's absolutely right about the development of the arms race between the U.S. and the USSR.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a huge missed opportunity in world history. We can't know for certain that it would have worked, but it seems like it had a pretty good shot, and to have not tried is a real shame. And in particular, once the hydrogen bomb is developed, we just lose that opportunity, right? Like, it's, it's just too late now. We can't rewind the clock right. uh, and go back to before they were detonated and wait for the test and, and all that kind of thing. Right. Um, and the the person who kind of comes off looking bad here is Truman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he overall doesn't doesn't isn't portrayed particularly well in the book, which I personally found refreshing because a lot of biographies of presidents show them all as you know kind of great men of history who rose to the occasion and you know if anything almost seemed like predestined to uh, lead the country during this time of peril uh, and. Yeah, I don't know that that sort of shtick gets like a little bit tiresome because it just seems sort of improbable that all the guys ending up in the presidency are actually like as amazing as as all that. Um, and so he he just comes off as kind of like a you know politician from Missouri who is in a little over his head, managed to become president but doesn't understand all this stuff, is intimidated by experts and doesn't want to show that he is, and so he just makes decisions and then sticks with them regardless of what the evidence shows because he wants to look decisive uh and he makes a number of kind of like bad decisions he's like convinced that the soviets aren't going to be able to develop a nuclear weapon which oppenheimer is like appalled at and then um yeah just goes full steam ahead with the h-bomb doesn't try any kind of arms control won't commit to a a no first use uh i don't know yeah not 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 a doesn't doesn't like make me (laughs) impressed with with truman
1: yeah absolutely i mean truman definitely comes up comes off pretty bad in the book i think uh one of the things you could say in mitigation is that when Truman was vice president um he didn't even know about the Manhattan Project you know he was not yeah he was not at all sort of in the inner circle of uh FDR's cabinet um so you know it's hard to say but if uh if Truman and FDR had had a closer relationship if it had been more of a partnership between vice president and president uh, maybe some of those uh, sort of rash decisions that Truman ends up making, um, you know, shortly after he assumes the presidency, um, that might have turned out differently. Right. Um, but it could also be, you know, that was sort of the personality of Truman and his, you know, desire to sort of mask any indecisiveness with or, yeah, sort of mask mask his insecurities with decisiveness. And I think yeah. the, the one other thing to say is that it wasn't like Truman. This was Truman's doing alone. There were a number of key officials thinking, in particular, of like Secretary of State um, James F. Burns. That
0: that's fair. You know, I mean, it's kind of funny. Truman. Truman has had the sign on his desk that said, "The buck stops with me," <laughs> right? Like <laughs> his his thing was assuming responsibility. And I, I hear what you're saying about he wasn't read into this stuff early on. Mm-hmm. But I think that's just sort of comes with the territory of being president, right? Like the whole the whole premise of, of, you know, this is the guy who you want to get the the midnight call is that this is someone who needs to be able to show up to a, a complicated situation and assess the facts without having foreknowledge of them all and then make a good decision. And he seems to fail at that a number of times, at least in relation to nuclear policy in, the, in, in this book.
1: Mm-hmm. Um Okay, so the, the the next thing we're going to be talking about is um, communism and Oppenheimer's relation relationship to communism and the Communist Party. Um, basically, Oppenheimer uh, could be thought of as a fellow as a thought of as a fellow traveler, essentially somebody that was on the left of the political spectrum and was sympathetic to the communist cause. Um, but there's no hard evidence that Oppenheimer was ever a member of the Communist Party. And this is important to understand because it it really informs his sort of political, uh, his political viewpoint, and it's ultimately what gets him in trouble later on during the McCarthyite scare, and it's what gets him kicked off of the Atomic Energy Commission in 1953 after his security hearing
0: yeah i mean i think a lot of this like if you think about the sort of ethical cultural school that he went to the kind of scenes that he ran and even as a kid they were pretty liberal mm-hmm. right they're pretty sympathetic to kind of the, the working man the proletariat mm-hmm. um and so i think he he retains those sympathies and generally wants kind of more equality supports labor rights it participates in unionization efforts at the university and mm-hmm. so Inevitably, he's going to be working with or affiliating with various communists because they were the most organized group that were working on those uh, types of problems. Sure. Um,
1: And to sort of step back, Mark, can you tell us a little bit just about communism in the 30s and 40s and sort of uh, I think today uh, we have this idea of, you know, all communists as being like evil or tyrannical or, you know, because of how uh, uh, because of what was done in the Soviet Union, there's this strong association between, you know, communism and what the Soviets did and sort of tyrannical power. Uh, But for a lot of, you know, kind of ordinary people, or just people that were maybe interested in uh, the left of the political spectrum, or in labor rights and civil rights, um, communism in the 30s and 40s could seem, you know, quite appealing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I think this is one of the things that the book does really well is, Because it's telling the story of someone who was, I mean, probably a fellow traveler, but accused of being a communist, you get a sort of first-person view into what communism felt like or how people viewed it in in that era. And yeah, to your point, it wasn't as sinister as it is now. Uh, There was certainly a sense that the Communist Party itself was pretty rigid and um, hierarchical, that people had to toe the party line if they were official card-carrying members of the Communist Party. But um, overall, it was just a group of people who cared about particular problems who were working together on them.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's the distinction between like a fellow traveler like uh, Oppenheimer. I mean, there's questions about whether he was a Communist Party member or just a fellow traveler, and a fellow traveler being somebody that's sympathetic um, to sort of the communist cause or to causes that uh, communists are involved in, um, but is not actually a member of the party.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, communists were really compelling at the time because they had a very clean worldview, mm-hmm. right? They have this story of how history evolves with dialectic materialism, and they have a vision for a utopian future that seems pretty good, that everybody's happy, everybody's equal. Um, you know, so are sort of abundance and plenty for everyone. And then you've got the USSR that attempts to set up a state along this model. And we know now was not doing very well. But at the time, the propaganda coming out of the USSR, and pretty much all the information that came out was propaganda, seemed to indicate that they were succeeding. And so I think there were a lot of people who were were uh, really attracted by what seemed to be on offer. And so and I think if- that...
1: I mean, just to piggyback off that, and if you look at, you know, say, like, uh, what was happening in Spain in the 30s, right, it's the communists that are fighting against the uh, fascist forces of, of Franco, right? Right. And, and this is true of, I mean, there, there's some question over that whole scenario, right? <laughs> Did the communists actually uh, fight as vigorously as they could have? You know, there are questions sure. about that. But if you look at, you know, you have sort of fascist governments of uh, Germany and Italy supporting Franco on the one hand, and you have the communists and their kind of anarchist allies or semi-allies on the other hand, and you're kind of on the left of the political spectrum, it's easy to see how, um, you know, and one of the things that Oppenheimer was uh, accused of doing and is known to have done is, you know, he sent money through uh, communist party front groups to help fight the um Frank- franco's forces in spain right yeah yeah but that's yeah. like a totally understand at the time that's like a totally understandable response to the what's happening in the world
0: right i mean i think frankly most people these days if you were to tell them to choose a side on the spanish civil war they would choose the communist side and, and, yeah, and there was a sense absolutely. right that 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 was those divisions were being drawn all across europe that Spain was sort of the forefront of this this um, impending division between communism and fascism. And if you're going to pick a side, like even now, maybe communism is the better. I mean, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we don't have to get into that. But it's, it's, it's understandable why someone would, would uh, be sympathetic to the communists and want to be working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there's this there's this deep disillusionment that happens, right? Uh, In the 40s, the USSR makes a pact with the Nazis. So everyone was like, oh, the communists are great They stand up to the fascists and then communist fascists, uh, you know, are become allies And at that point uh, a lot of people walk away from the Communist Party or at least are no longer sympathetic don't want to be fellow travelers Mm -hmm. Um, and then the final disillusionment, right is when uh, the kind of Stalinist crimes and and genocide were uh, revealed
1: yeah, Khrushchev has this, when uh, Nikita Khrushchev takes over from Stalin after Stalin dies, there's this closed, it's supposed to be a closed door meeting. I think it was like the the communists, I was like the Comintern um in 56, but it, it leaks quite rapidly. And, you know, it's like, it's kind of amazing
0: how fast it leaks. Like, yeah, everybody yeah. in the US and the UK who like somehow seemed to know about this speech that was supposed to be hush-hush.
1: Right, right. And this is also, I mean, this is what divides the um, Soviet Union and the uh, Chinese Communist Party at the time, because Mao is still like a kind of, I don't know, unrepentant uh, Stalinist. Um, And that's, uh, that becomes a very important break between the, you know, the two largest communist powers in the world. And that's also something that, like, American policymakers never fully appreciate, uh, you know, into for a long period after that, there still continues to be this view of you know communism worldwide as being the sort of monolithic movement that operates in the exact same way in every single country, right? Um, which we know now you know is, is absolutely not true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I was just going to mention that there's a there's an interesting book, an ever ever long <laughs> long <laughs> book, but uh, the Golden Notebook by Doris uh, Lessing and uh it's about um you know two women that became communist party members in the 30s and the book takes place more in like the mid-50s and one of the sort of main protagonists of the story is still a member of the communist party um and the other like protagonist is not and it's sort of about the decision to either stay in the party or to leave the party and it delves into you know in the 30s, you know what these women thought that they were getting involved with when they became party members, and I think it really—I don't know—for me, it, it really sets the stage for in the 30s and 40s. You know what 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 did communism communism mean to people? And you know, just speaking personally, I I could certainly have seen myself. Maybe not. Maybe I wouldn't have been a communist party member, but you know, maybe a, a fellow traveler for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's hard to know,
1: but, you know, I can can certainly see it.
0: Yeah, and I guess guess sort of jumping between the two sort of peaks of disillusionment when the the, um, USSR-Germany pact was signed and then the Khrushchev speech. In between that, right, the USSR does uh, become the U.S.'s ally after Mm -hmm. Hitler um, violates the treaty and invades. Mm -hmm. And so then there is this period of time when Oppenheimer is working on the atomic bomb When there's a group of them that argue, you know, these guys are our allies, and they think that we should, in fact, be sharing nuclear secrets with them, right? Like, if if we are all in a united front trying to defeat the Nazis, why would we, you know, try to be so secretive and prevent them from learning information that would be useful?
1: Yeah, there's this, um, I mean, that's where you get, like, the sort of Uncle Joe, uh, (laughs) you know, Uncle Joe Stalin uh, figure. It's from, you know, that kind of... uh, Rhetoric when the Soviet Union becomes one of the Allied powers—that you know, oh, you know the USSR is really not so bad, and you know there are <laughs> buddies, and you know there are posters of you know American and Soviet soldiers, you know. Right, there's like government alongside. propaganda. Right, promoting uh, this idea, and you know there are there's a there's a famous uh, spy Ted Hall. Uh, who was working on the Manhattan Project, and he wasn't a double agent for the Soviets, but he thought that it was wrong that the Americans were keeping, you know, the atomic technology secret. And so he just walked into, I don't know, it's like the Soviet embassy somewhere, and, you know, handed over a bunch of information about the Manhattan Project. Um, And I think it reflected a sort of common strain of thinking among a lot of the scientists that worked on the Manhattan Project, that more of the sort of nuclear technology should be shared with the Soviets because they're our ally at the time, and they're doing, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the fighting in Europe.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, and so I think that's that. That sort of brings us to Oppenheimer himself, mm-hmm. um, which is that yeah, he he had communist sympathies. He he donated a whole bunch of money to various uh, causes that were kind of operated by the communists, um, ostensibly, you know, some of them good causes. Uh,
1: Yeah, and and a lot of this wasn't, I mean, the other thing to understand is that, like, at the time that he's, like, donating to these various front groups, and he's a subscriber to, like, the People's World, this is all, uh, it's not really done in secret. This is all pretty much, like, out in the open, you know, and that's another thing that's, like, uh, you would maybe think that, oh, you know, this is all, like, secret meetings, you know, somewhere in a basement, and there certainly were those happening, but, you know, for Oppenheimer, this is mostly just done out in, out in, out, in, uh, out in the open.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there was some amount of secrecy, certainly, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, not. It wasn't underground in the way that it would become in later years. Yeah, uh, and, and, and so the,
1: the the question is the question that you had, Mark, right? Is you know, could he have been a communist? And the the authors definitely seem to think that he wasn't a, a communist party member. Um, but it, it, there's no definitive proof one way or the other.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, basically this consensus for a while probably was that he was a Communist Party member. At least, uh, you know, he, he lost his um, seat on AEC because of accusations that he yeah. was a member of the well, Communist I Party. Well, I don't know
1: about that. I think it was more that like uh, what, what he ended up, I mean, being kicked off of the AEC for was... He was ruled to be like a loyal citizen, but his sort of contacts were too kind of suspicious.
0: Yeah, and, that's and fair. It, I, and guess, I guess that it's is consistent with him being a fellow traveler.
1: Yeah, and it's certainly true. So his his younger brother, Frank, and uh, his brother's wife, Barbara, they were... Was it Barbara? I think that was somebody else. But in any case, his I younger brother that, and yeah. his wife, they were both Communist Party members, um, admitted Communist Party members. He had a long-term on and off lover gene tatlock who was a communist party member his wife's first husband uh kitty oppenheimer her first husband died in spain fighting for the communist or fighting with the communist um
0: and, and kitty he, was a communist party member at some point right i, I believe so yeah she definitely she like the party she, yeah she was like distributing party you mm-hmm. know materiel and was uh yeah yeah. pretty involved, at least while she was with her first husband.
1: Yeah. And that was, like, significantly before she knew Oppenheimer. But, you know, again, she had those associations. Yeah. And then Oppenheimer also had friends slash colleagues, uh, most notably Hoke and Chevalier. I think he was a, was a professor at, like, Berkeley. Um, yeah, I think maybe but, he not a But not, a, tenure, but not yeah, like a physicist. Was, he was, he was uh, something in the humanities. A
0: romance languages, I think.
1: Yeah, something like that. But point being that, you know... Uh, and Hogan Chevalier was a known Communist Party member. Um, So, yeah, so there are a lot of people that he knew (laughs) that were certainly members of the Communist Party.
0: Yeah. Um, So, yeah, like, I mean, honestly, it's sort of understandable. Like if you try to put this in modern context, right? Um, And these were like, say, Chinese Communist Party members. and some like very senior nuclear physicist was uh, married to you know a former member of the communist <laughs> Chinese communist party like had all these sorts of contacts then like yeah you may not want this person on committees the problem is that back when he was affiliating with these people it wasn't such a big deal it just evolved to become that way when the ussr became pretty clearly our stated enemy mm-hmm. during the cold war
1: yeah it's it's interesting so during his uh, his security review uh, for the AEC in 1953, um, he's defended by a number. He's defended by Leslie R. Groves, um, who led the Manhattan Project, and also Edward Lansdale, who was like the head of the security, like the military security for the project. And, and Lansdale like, explicitly says that, like, okay, the, the, the accusations against Oppenheimer, you're uh, accusing him for associations that... Uh, at the time, um, you know, you're making them seem much more sinister now in 1953 than they were at the time in the early 40s.
0: Right. So yeah, he probably isn't a communist party member. I think that's, that's right at this point. Um, so I guess to sort of back up and explain what we're talking about, that the, the Atomic Energy Commission is his primary method of being involved in government policymaking mm-hmm. and decisions around nuclear policy. So there's, there's some accusations made against him. There's there's like this whole backstory that I think we don't want to get into where there is um, this uh, like administrator at Princeton, or I guess he's on the board at Princeton. Um, yeah, he, he's a member of
1: the AEC and he's, he's a also member of the AEC, like and he's, a board, board member he's for, like the, s- uh, for the advanced... Uh, Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton. Yeah, at so Princeton. he's
0: like kind of... Uh, Oppenheimer's boss at Princeton, and then also kind of his boss. Um, yeah, well, it's at like the AEC. boss slash
1: colleague. I don't know. There's a the a point, point. being, yeah, it's it's Lewis Strauss. Yes, yeah, so there's this guy. They named really, Louis Strauss. they really him and Oppenheimer just really do not hit it out, hit it off. And it's almost from the get go that Lewis Strauss, like he he kind of wants to bring Oppenheimer down. I was yeah. I was actually thinking about this in terms of we talked earlier about you know Oppenheimer as being this very charming, charismatic figure, and this is you know another example in which uh, <laughs> now it's, it's not to say that this is like entirely uh, Oppenheimer's fault, but uh, I think there there are certain things about Oppenheimer's personality and sort of intellectual arrogance that really rub Louis Strauss the wrong way, and it's totally possible that he and Strauss could have had like a constructive relationship um if not for the way that oppenheimer behaved
0: yeah yeah that's definitely true but but
1: lewis strauss also seems like he was a very prickly person who uh he like collected information you know on his like kind of uh oh yeah he's got like files on
0: anybody that ever (laughs) slighted him he literally keeps physical like copies and just holds a grudge like crazy but yeah oppenheimer was abrasive they're both kind of arrogant people um they did not get along. And so Louis Strauss is gunning for Oppenheimer. So he's the one um, that decides to use Oppenheimer's uh, former Communist Party affiliations against him. Mm-hmm. So he he brings this information to the AC. He even talks to um, Truman about this at some point, doesn't he? Uh, yeah. There's like there's like a whole kind of and, back channel of people who are, and, who are uh, happy to look into Oppenheimer and don't love what he does politically because yeah. they disagree with his policies. Right.
1: Absolutely. And Hoover, um, you know, a longtime director of the FBI, he's involved with this, you know, from the beginning, he had long had suspicions about Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer's loyalties. And Oppenheimer surveilled from like, I think it's like 46 to 53. He's under FBI, you know, wiretaps, and they're producing, you know, like a 1000 pages of information each year about Oppenheimer and his contacts and, and all that. Um, so there's a much sort of longer backstory, and that was another reason why. So uh, uh, a lot of sort of policymaker official types they were hesitant to bring Oppenheimer on for the Manhattan Project because uh, his sort of associations uh, with communist party members um, and his donations to uh, party front groups these these were known like at the time of the Manhattan Project and when he right. was brought on. Yeah. And that's another thing is like he passed a security review at right. that time. Right, this was all looked into. Mm-hmm. And, and then he, he passed a second security review when he was appointed to the Atomic Energy Commission in like 47. Um, but again, the same accusations come out come come up for a final time in, in
0: 53. Yeah. So he he's uh yeah, has to go to this hearing that is constructed in such a way that it's almost impossible for him to defend himself, right? Mm-hmm. The the defense, um, he's allowed counsel and he, he makes a poor choice of counsel because he doesn't choose anybody who actually is a trial lawyer. He chooses someone who's like a mm-hmm. corporate lawyer. Um, and then he also doesn't get to see, like the defense doesn't get to see any of the evidence that's going to be presented against him. So they don't even know what he's going to be accused of, what evidence they have. And then he just gets interviewed for like hours on end and the, the prosecution can basically refer to this stuff without him ever seeing it. So they can say, Oh, we've got this file that says this thing. And he just has to accept what they say at face value and doesn't know kind of what he's up against.
1: Yeah. I mean, the prosecution is sort of like, you know, in, they have the records of interviews that he had done with like security officials for the Manhattan project and they can read that information of the record and you know, Oppenheimer says, Oh yeah, well, if it says it, I said it, and <laughs> you know he he has no way of sort of combating that. So there there are a couple like specific things that he's like potentially accused of. There's there's a specific instance, the Chevalier affair with the uh, and Chevalier that we mentioned before, and basically the the accusation is that Chevalier approached Oppenheimer on the behalf of a British physicist named George Eltonton, Um. To pass information about the Manhattan Project right, through right. Elton onto the Soviets. Um, and there's no evidence that Oppenheimer took him up on that offer. And there's these, even some question over whether Chevalier approached Oppenheimer or if he actually approached um, Frank, his uh, brother. Mm-hmm. And then there are all these like accounts of the meeting between Chevalier and Oppenheimer from. Oppenheimer from Chevalier, from their wives, from Elsenton, and it's sort of like a Rashomon type of situation where everybody basically tells the same story but with, like, sort of different details here and there. Right. Um, And there was another accusation by a guy, Paul Crouch, who accused Oppenheimer of having led a Communist Party meeting in 1941, Uh, but Crouch was later proven to be a very unreliable... uh, sort of um witness and i think he was even like sued like successfully sued for libel by somebody else that he yeah he was going around making
0: all sorts of just crazy accusations Mm -hmm. um and got a whole bunch of people in trouble became like an important witness for the house on american activities committee and then it really blew up in their face because um Mm -hmm. he had said a bunch of things that turned out to be false
1: right and i guess the the final thing to mention and uh, this ties back with our discussion earlier about the development of the hydrogen bomb of the um, super, that this is, this is sort of the breaking point for um, people like Strauss and Edward Teller, Edward Teller being a physicist who is like the, the principal advocate for developing a hydrogen bomb um, immediately. And it, it's it's over. Oppenheimer is basically opposed to developing the hydro bomb, as we talked about before. He had, you know, this idea that well, if, if nobody develops it, um, it will be easy to detect if somebody does, you know, test it, um, and we can have a sort of moratorium on its development. Uh, but this becomes sort of the one of the key accusations is that Oppenheimer actively tried to prevent the development of a hydrogen bomb. And the accusation being that he did that because he was either a Communist Party member or sympathetic to the um, Soviet Union. Right. Yeah. And ultimately, in 1953, you know, he loses a security clearance. It's a two to one vote against him. Yeah, it's Um, just
0: like the trial is sort of a kangaroo trial. Like there was there was not really any shot of them winning. mm -hmm. Um, And so he'd been advised by a number of people just to walk away. Don't don't even engage in the trial. Don't give it any sort of legitimacy. Um, but then one of the funny things that happens, right, so he, as you mentioned, he loses his, um, his security clearance, he's stripped, this becomes public, it's, uh, you know, a bit of a scandal for him, right, that mm-hmm. he's this public intellectual, he's this important figure, and then he, um, you know, is deemed by the government too dangerous to work on nuclear secrets, which is his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the, um, I guess the transcript of the trial, right, gets leaked, Uh, and it becomes clear to the people who read it or who, uh, you know, are still following the affair that he was railroaded, right? The, the transcript Mm -hmm. of the trial doesn't make the, um, I guess prosecution as we're calling them come off looking particularly, uh, good or ethical.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's, it seems pretty clear, you know, at least from the way the book tells it that, um. You know, it was it was an un, it was a very unfair trial or it wasn't even supposed to be a trial. You know, it was a hearing, but it was conducted like it was a prosecution. Right. Um, and yeah, in the end, you know, Oppenheimer comes off looking fairly good, at least um, as, as opposed to uh, how Strauss and um, the sort of prosecution does.
0: Right. Yeah. So he after he gets stripped of his security clearance and. um There's a bit of a scandal, um, and he sort of loses his place in public life. I think partly uh, this is like, I guess he loses influences two ways. Partly is that the public no longer sees him in quite the same way. Although I actually think he could have used that, the sort of public bully pulpit a lot more effectively than he he did to continue to have interviews and write op-eds and that sort of thing and speak to kind of the American citizenry or the world at large. Um, But he he really, at this point, loses his access to policymakers, that he's no longer in the inner circle of people who are deciding what U.S. nuclear policy should be, how to approach the Cold War. Um, They end up taking a lot of positions that are, I think, opposite to what he had originally um, sort of advocated for in terms of arms control and restraint. Um, And my sense is that he spends uh, the most, like the rest of his post-war or like his post-hearing life trying to... I guess get back into power unsuccessfully.
1: Yeah, I mean his. Uh, there's a part of the book talks about that his brother Frank, you know, thought that um, Oppenheimer for the rest of his life was you know sort of frustrated that he couldn't find a way back into official circles. Um, and you can see, I don't think I took a note on this, but there was there are a number of instances there's one specific instance where he had like an opportunity to have signed on to sort of like a petition you know against the way that nuclear policy was developing Mm -hmm. and you know he opts out of doing that um because uh again because of that fear that once the door is closed like he, he you know he's he's hesitant to close the door all the way thinking that if he maintains some sort of Uh, you know, if he keeps it open a little bit, maybe he can get back in.
0: Right. And there's a sense that even in his public statements, um, yeah, when people ask him, what do you think of this, that or the other? He's uh, moderates what he says a lot more or maybe takes a more conservative position because he wants to uh, look like someone who still viably could participate in um, you know government discussions. Yeah, it's sort of hard to
1: evaluate because, I mean, the book talks about you know, when it talks about his sort of post-hearing life, um, and he's still at—he's still running like the Princeton the uh, advanced study program at Princeton. He's still doing that, so sure. he still has like an influence in terms of like the academic world. He's still sort of making yeah. a mark in yeah, that right. in that way. Um, but yeah, he, he does interviews. He does a famous interview with uh, with Murrow um, on a program. See see it now. And in that, he kind of like vaguely alludes to like the dangers of secrecy, um, and also sort of the contradiction of like scientists having a desire to be like called in and asked for their counsel. Um, you know, probably sort of thinking of himself here, you know, maybe not, uh, uh, maybe just subconsciously, but that, you know, again, he, he, he wants to be able to like, uh, give his advice and he doesn't want to become full a full critic because then he won't be able to you know give any advice and he also speaks out there's a i don't remember if this is a speech or something but the book says in 1956 he he calls the hiroshima bombings tragic and um, the book talks about how he you know he does sort of come to regret that and also feel like he wasn't provided all the information that he could have been that he really had no insight into like the military situation at the time and one could suspect that maybe if he had more of that information he might have made you know just dis- different situ- different uh, decision in terms of like uh signing on to right the petitions of like leo Salard and-, and other things like that yeah
0: he kind of bought into the rationale for dropping the bomb in a way that um yeah he probably wouldn't have if he had known more yeah
1: um, and at the end of his life in 63 he's awarded the enrico Fermi prize by jfk which you know a lot of people sort of uh, saw as a um, because he hadn't, he hadn't won the nobel up to that point but this is an ever you know like an important four-year contribution to science prize and it was a sort of public rehabilitation of oppenheimer but definitely not total and that's you know at the very end of his life and a lot of people are still very angry about that um you know because there's still a widespread perception of Oppenheimer as being a sort of traitor in one sense or the other.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, And I think I I want to talk a little bit about just him as a public intellectual generally, even before the hearing um, and the extent to which, yeah, I think the, the book sort of says a number of times that he's like this paradigmatic public intellectual, like he is the archetype of scientist as public intellectual that emerges at this period of time. Um, and I, I don't know how much I agree with that. I guess because, I mean, may, maybe at the time he was, uh, you know, significant force. But as we said earlier, like neither of us really knew that much about him going into the book. Whereas to me, I mean, Einstein is alive at the same time, right? And Einstein is also making very public statements about nuclear war and various things that you know are to some degree outside of his official expertise. Um, but Einstein seems to me more like the quintessential public intellectual or like scientist as public intellectual that he you know has made these great scientific achievements and that gives him the sort of moral authority or the gravitas or whatever to you know sort of opine about other subjects and people take him seriously
1: i mean einstein and oppenheimer weren't super close um but basically that you know einstein didn't really Super respect Oppenheimer. Like as a physicist, uh, you know he liked he liked Oppenheimer as a man, but uh, didn't really think much of his physics. Um, but they they sort of were on the same wavelength in terms of um, you know nuclear policy and things like that. But the big difference being, like like Mark said, that um, Einstein was much more ready to sort of publicly um, declare his stances on these issues. And Oppenheimer used his influence, you know, much more cautiously. And I think it it could sort of speak to the fact that, you know, Einstein is a um, uh, I guess you say like an emigre. You know, he doesn't at this at this point in time. You know, it's for a long time he's been out of his you know home country. And um, whereas with Oppenheimer, you know, he's a sort of American through and through in a way. And you know, even going back to his time at the Ethical Culture School, right? Is there was this kind of notion of you know, like Republican, uh, like Judaic Republicanism in a way, and um, the importance of like the the country and uh, sort of being patriotic, if that makes if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, whereas sense. whereas with Einstein, you know, he's he in any he's sort of divorced from any one like nation or you know, yeah, any one nation, you know, Oppenheimer is still like the American scientist. Whereas Einstein, even though he's in America and has been in America for a number of years at this point, you know, he's more of a sort of world figure. And and for that reason, maybe a better sort of or more paradigmatic figure as a kind of public intellectual, um, you know, he doesn't have those those ties.
0: Yeah, I I think that's true. I think to me, a public intellectual is that kind of like your, your, you choose to use your influence primarily publicly. Like um, t- to me, Paul Krugman is kind of currently the version of this, right? He wins the Nobel Prize in economics. He writes a column for the New York Times. He doesn't work in government really at all, never mm-hmm. has had significant policymaking roles in government. Mm-hmm. His influence is, is exercised outside of, of uh, you know, the government sphere. And I, I think there, there are people obviously who can kind of do both. Um, but to me, that's why Einstein is, is, yeah, sort of a more classic version of the public intellectual than, uh, Oppenheimer.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and during Oppenheimer's security review, you know, Einstein's advice to him was just to, you know, walk away. Yeah. I was like, why do you care? Like you're, you're, you're (laughs) going to get dragged
0: through the mud. These guys are going to like rake you over the hot coals. And for what? Uh, yeah. I think Einstein didn't understand the sort of attraction to working inside of the halls of power. He, he would rather just say what he believes and then not be beholden to anybody.
1: Yeah. And I think that's sort, that sort of goes to the difference between the, between the two men yeah. and, you know, and also maybe why, I mean, that's a, that's a really hard question to answer and I don't, I don't have a good answer for it, but it's, it's an interesting one is, you know, why, why do we not know more about Oppenheimer or, you know, why is, uh, I guess, why, you know, why is he not sort of taught in the same way that, like, an Einstein is? You know, he's certainly not, like, a forgotten history or uh, figure in history, but given the, the, the influence that he had, uh, you know, in, like, from, like, the early 40s to the, like, early 50s and his role at the Manhattan Project and then developing nuclear policy, you know, one would sort of think that he would be much more well known and, uh, I don't know, appreciated for that or understood for that. And I really don't think that's the case. You know, you learn, you know, I guess he had some role or he, he led the most novelist project and he, he gave that one quote about the <laughs> Bhagavad Gita <laughs> and that's, yeah. you know, that's about it. Uh, so
0: yeah. Uh,
1: and I guess final thought, I don't know, you know, and, interesting life, right? I think he's, he's one of these figures, and you sort of run across them of um, you know, people that they sort of span a period of time and like, their life spans a period of time where like a lot of the, the major issues of the day in terms of Oppenheimer, you had, you know, the development of quantum physics, um, uh, the, you know, the way communism was viewed, um, the Manhattan Project, World War Two, and he's sort of an important figure. Like uh, you can understand a lot about those events through learning about his life, and uh, I think that's that's what makes him such a good, you know, figure for biographical study.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think yeah, the the book was good. I would recommend it. It's really long. <laughs> sort of maybe my my primary qualm and then my other my criticism is just sort of how much it jumps around it gets a little confusing mm-hmm. in particular it doesn't even introduce the manhattan project like <laughs> formally before yeah. starting to reference it yeah. um There's they're like of- it was like oh yeah and then these guys were working on the manhattan project and blah 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 and then like later on it, anyway to me it seemed obvious that this is the this is kind of the culmination of his career and so there mm-hmm. should be like a more formal like the manhattan project was officially conceived at what point in time who was running it who brought him on and it, it treats it a lot more casually and then it also yeah, just kind of like jumps between uh various time periods it's in a confusing way
1: yeah that's that's it folks we done talked to storm storm up uh just for the listeners at home this is like our 12th recording for this <laughs> so, uh I mean that—that's in part because Zoom Zoom sucks, and they cut us off at 40 minutes because we're cheap bastards. Um, but yeah, it's also been a very—we lost—we lost a section of audio. So anything that we failed to address, you know, that was all covered in the lost, the forever lost section of audio. I'm afraid.
0: Yes, <laughs> alas. All right,
1: folks. Thanks for listening to episode number 7 of Champs at the Lit. Thanks to Wes Braver for creating our theme music. You can check his work out on TikTok and Instagram at Wes Braver. Apologies for the couple days late episode. As you may have noticed, this was a long one. And it involves stitching together many different recordings. So, in three weeks' time, drum roll, please, we will be releasing episode number eight of Champs of the Lit, and we'll be covering the book The Reluctant Fundamentalist by Mohsen Hamid. It's a book about a young Pakistani immigrant named Chengez. A recent Princeton grad, Chengez gets a job at a high-powered New York City consultancy, right before the events of 9-11 and the book is about chengiz's time in the united states his reaction to 9-11 and the reverberations of that event in chengiz's personal life in the life of his adopted country of america and in his home country of pakistan So please join us for that episode. It's an excellent book, and I highly recommend it. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.